So we're continuing our series in uh, Romans, and we come, of course, to the tail end of chapter 3. We're going to focus most of our time on chapter 4. So before we look at that together, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, uh, your Bible is amazing. Uh, It is a unified story, although written by many different people uh, over many uh, hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, You have guided them to write what they wrote, and we see that your rescue plan wonderfully fits together, uh, ultimately being fulfilled uh, in the sending of your Son. As we reflect on this passage of Scripture, and particularly as it goes back to the Old Testament, Uh, we pray that we would see more clearly how uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has been your plan uh, from the very beginning of time. And may we be encouraged in our faith in him and our life to live for your glory. Amen. On the 18th of April, uh, 1521, the theologian and reformer Martin Luther was called to an assembly at a place called Worms in Germany. Uh, He was to appear before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, Luther arrived prepared for another debate, but he quickly discovered it was, in fact, a trial at which he was asked to recant his views. Uh, Luther replied, and I quote, "'Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and I will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. And then he added, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. It was an incredibly bold stand that Luther took that day, faced with the might of the church and the Roman Empire. And yet uh, his life was in peril. And yet he stands firm, holding to the gospel. Uh, He had, of course, discovered what we were looking at last week. Uh, In his reading of Romans, he had discovered this wonderful, precious truth of justification by faith. If you remember, we saw that that means justification means that we are made right with God. We are made righteous before God. Uh, But it is by faith. Uh, Luther had grasped onto this, and he realized it was the most precious thing. And he wasn't going to be moved Uh, even at the cost of his life. So in Romans chapter 3, we saw last week, uh, Paul has just been expounding this most precious truth, uh, this uh, belief of justification by faith. And of course, Paul does this in the hope that this truth will be embraced by his readers. Uh, Paul is going to go to great lengths to prove that this truth is true. And Paul, in his great mind, he anticipates and responds to uh, objections of his readers. And that is what he now does in chapter 4. And what we're going to see also, uh, that in chapter 4, he's unpacking more of what it means to be justified by faith. And we'll understand more about what it means to be justified, but also what faith is and how it grows. So now, uh, beginning of chapter 4. Uh, we see that Paul is now particularly focusing on his Jewish readers. Uh, He's anticipating objections they may have because he talks of uh, Abraham, our forefather. Of course, Abraham was uh, the forefather of the Jewish nation. Uh, The Jews revered him uh, him as the the founding father. 
Uh, of course, it was also to Abraham that God had made these pivotal promises, promises to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. So, Paul is anticipating the objections, the queries in, in the minds of his Jewish readers. Uh, what he's just outlined in chapter 3, uh, which we saw last week, is great news. And his chief concern is that we may now understand it and be convinced that it is true. It's this wonderful truth that Jews and Gentiles alike are justified through faith in Christ. Now, you see, getting into the mind of uh, Jewish readers, uh, by this point, they would be saying in their mind, how can this be? Paul, why haven't I heard this before? Uh, what about all our prior history? Uh, isn't this belief of being justified by faith something new and novel in God's dealings with us? And Paul's response, of course, is absolutely not. It's been this way all along. And throughout chapter 4 now, Paul is going to prove this, and he's going to support this justification by faith using the Old Testament data. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Uh, by what means was Abraham justified before God? Uh, was it by means of his works or his faith? Look at verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited occurs 11 times in this chapter. In this opening section, it's used five times in six verses. It's the key word. Of course, it's the language of commerce, of financial statements and balance sheets. If there are any accountants here today, I'm sure your ears were twitching as the passage was being read. The word credited conveys this sense of making a deposit into a bank account. You know, it's, it's as if we each have a spiritual bank account with God. Uh, the debit column lists our acts of unrighteousness, and the credit column lists our acts of righteousness. And the bad news is that the de debit column goes on page after page after page after page. All our failures, our failures to truly love people, all our wrong thoughts, all our wrong, wrong deeds, all our wrong words. And tragically, the credit column is completely blank and it's a desperate and crippling state of affairs. On an overcast day in late April 2009, a service station owner in Rotorua, New Zealand, blinked in disbelief as he stared at his online bank account statement. The balance read $10 million in the credit. Uh, the previous day, Leo Gayo had arranged a bank overdraft of $10,000 for his ailing service station business. However, due to a clerical error, Westpac had inadvertently deposited $10 million in his account. Over the months that followed, Gayo and his girlfriend, Cara Herring, transferred funds into offshore accounts and went on a global spending spree. <laughs> 
when the couple were eventually arrested, only three million of the original 10 was recoverable by Westpac. When we put our faith in Christ, uh, we blink in disbelief as we stare at our life's statement of account. A massive deposit has been made. Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account, but it is no clerical error. And the good news is, we don't have to give it back. Uh, What's more, our debits column is completely empty. It's as if a two-way transfer has been enacted. Uh, Our myriad acts of unrighteousness have been transferred to Christ's account. And Christ's myriad acts of righteousness have been transferred to ours. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, did you notice uh, in verses 4 and 5 that this credit to our account is a free gift? It's not a salary. Uh, verse 4, uh, now man, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Uh, When you get that credit line on your bank statement each month uh, stating salary, uh, you don't say to yourself, how generous of my boss. Uh, You've actually earned it. It's your due. But when you get the credit into your account on your birthday from Aunt Ethel, who you haven't written to for 20 years, you say to yourself, I didn't deserve that. It's an undeserved gift. And so it is the righteousness that God credits to our account through faith in Christ. The only way that our spiritual banking account is going to be in credit is by an act of pure grace on God's behalf. It's a gift. We cannot earn it. It's undeserved. We don't warrant it. Uh, For good measure, Paul calls to the stand another key witness from Old Testament history. Uh, It's the illustrious King David. He was one of the greatest kings of Israel. Uh, He was a man after God's own heart. Look at uh, verse 6 onwards. Uh, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Uh, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Uh, David was a great king, uh, but he was flawed also. And David was all too aware of his own sinfulness. He realized he needed God to not count his sins against his account, but to transfer them to another. So what are the implications of this? Well, a right response to this is not to boast, but to praise. Going back to chapter 3, verse 27. uh, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? Of that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Uh, Boasting comes naturally to us as human beings. 
However, we have nothing to boast about before God. Without Christ, our spiritual bank account is hopelessly overdrawn. If we are justified, if we're accepted by God, it is simply because we have accepted this free gift and that has cleared our debt. Every account in credit before God is a registered charity in which the funds have come from a single donor, from God himself. And not only does it mean there is no boasting, but also there is no change. There has only ever been one way to get right with God. It's by faith, not by works. Before God, good works don't work. A common misconception is that in the Old Testament, people were justified through works, and in the New Testament, they're now justified through faith. But we see that is not so. It was the same for Abraham and for David as it is for you and me today. God has not changed, and he's not changed his mind about how people get right with him. God is wonderfully consistent and unchanging. So, firstly, we've seen, uh, Paul presents the case from the Old Testament uh, that Abraham, this key figure, was justified by faith and not by works. Uh, next, we see in verses 9 to 12 that Abraham was justified by faith and not by being religious. Uh, the key words in verses 9 to 12, they're not difficult to spot. Uh, circumcision and uncircumcision come up six times. Uh, verse 9 puts the issue in the form of a question. Verse 9 says this, uh, is this blessedness, which means being justified before God, being made right before him, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? As you're probably aware, uh, circumcision was a physical sign of membership of God's people. And the question is, was Abraham accepted by God because he was circumcised and because he kept, therefore, the religious rules. Uh, the deciding factor is stated in verse 10. Look at it. Uh, under what circumstances was it credited, this righteousness? Uh, was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Uh, when you actually read the account in Genesis, it's apparent that Abraham was justified by faith at least 14 years before God told him to become circumcised. So you see, he wasn't, just, he wasn't justified and accepted by God because he kept the religious rules. It was through faith. And as verse 11 says, circumcision is just a sign. It's a seal of the righteousness which he already enjoyed. So why is this significant? It confirms that before God, we cannot be made righteous by being religious. That the only way is the same way it's always been, by faith in God, and in this case, now in Christ. So whether we're from a religious or an irreligious background, it makes no difference. As verse 11 to 12 says, it means that Abraham is the spiritual father of all those who have faith in God, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether they are religious or irreligious in terms of their background and heritage. It's interesting, the closer we look at Abraham's faith, uh, the more clearly we understand the nature of Christian faith. 
And at its heart, faith is trusting in God's promises. Abraham, we're told, was justified by faith in God's promises, not performance of God's law. Look at verse 13. Uh, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, The word promise now moves to center stage in this final section. It actually occurs five times. Uh, The background to God's promises to Abraham uh, are found in Genesis chapter 12, 15 and 17. Uh, Maybe read them uh, later. God promises to bless Abraham, of course, with a great posterity uh, through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Uh, Look at uh, Genesis 15, verse 5. Uh, He, that is God, took him, that is Abraham, outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Uh, The only problem... Uh, was that Abraham was 75 years old at the time. And his wife, Sarah, was no spring chicken either. Uh, She was 66 and had no kids of their own at that time. And yet, how does the Genesis account say Abraham responded? Chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So you see... In Abraham, we see that the essence of faith is believing God's promises. Uh, We take God at his word. Uh, The language of law and promise are very different. Uh, The language of law is cold. It says, you shall, and it demands our obedience. But the language of promise is warm. It says, I will, and it demands our faith. And therefore, faith's function is simply to humbly receive what grace gives. And from grace flows a wonderful implication, a guarantee. You see, receipt of God's blessings relies on God, not us. It relies on God's promise-keeping power, not our perfect performance. Look at at, uh, chapter 4 of Romans, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but those, also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. The gift of righteousness God gives. It's a gift which he gives by his grace not dependent on our performance, but on his generosity. All we've got to do is receive it. And that means it's guaranteed to anyone who puts their faith in Christ. The Christian enjoys a deep assurance of God's forgiveness and God's favor. And it provides a solid bedrock to their life. As we sing a blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And as we continue on in chapter 4, and as we look deeper into the heart of Abraham, we perceive how the true fiber of faith, uh, how, uh, how it grows. 
Uh, people often talk, of course, about blind faith. Uh, they talk about faith being a leap in the dark. But Christian faith is something completely different. In a scripture class, uh, a teacher asked his students how they would define Christian faith. Uh, one bright young spark shot his hand up and volunteered, faith is trying to believe something that you know ain't true. Christian faith isn't trying to believe something that you know ain't true. Uh, Christian faith is not burying our head in the sand. Uh, faith is not denying the problems that loom large above us. Christian faith starts with facing the facts, and that is what Abraham did. Look at verse 19. Uh, without weakening in his faith, he, that is Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's room was also dead. Christian faith isn't a leap in the dark. Christian faith faces the facts, but it doesn't stop there in despair. It then looks to God and it reasons. It poses questions to self. Can I trust this God to do what he has said he will do? Uh, the obstacles are big, but my God is bigger. Uh, from my perspective, this is impossible, but from God's perspective, anything is possible. And what we see is that Abraham reasoned with himself. Uh, he persuaded himself that God had the power to deliver on his promise against all odds. Look at verse 20. Yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Sarah's womb was as good as dead, but Abraham reasons with himself. He says, my God is the God who gives life to the dead, and therefore my God can do what he's promised, although it's against all odds. Uh, look at verse 17. He is our father in the sight, this is Abraham, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. It's interesting just to pull in the lay-by for a minute and to think about uh, what it takes for somebody to keep a promise if a promiser is to keep their promise, they have to have two things. Firstly, the power to deliver and the will to deliver on their promise. So, uh, somebody may have the best of intentions to keep their word, but they may be frustrated by events beyond their control, and they may not be able to keep their promise. They therefore have to have the power to fulfill what they promise. But alternatively, somebody may have the power to fulfill a promise, but not the heart. They may have the will, uh, they must have the will to be faithful to their word. And in God, of course, we see that both are true. God has the power to keep his promise and the will to keep his promise. Uh, God's dealings with people have been consistent throughout history. As we sing in that great hymn, Great is His Faithfulness, God changes not, and His compassions they change not. As He has been, He forever will be. Great is His faithfulness. 
God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He can be depended on to do what he says. But we also see God has the power to keep his promise. And he's demonstrated that in history. You see, you and I have more of a basis to trust in God's power than Abraham did. Because, of course, we live on the other side of the resurrection of Christ. We have seen God's resurrection power at work in history. As verse 24 says, For for us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Uh, God's account, uh, the the account of God's dealing with Abraham, uh, it's not just preserved for archiving in the Tel Aviv history of the Hebrew People's Museum. Uh, Abraham is recorded in the Bible for you and for me so that we will walk the same journey of faith as Abraham did. Look at verse 23. Uh, The words, uh, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. What God required of Abraham is what he requires of all people. Faith in his word, trust in his promise. So as we close, um, two questions to consider about, to consider. What has, uh, what has, how does faith grow and what has God promised? Abraham's faith was in the promise of descendants Our faith is in God's promise to bless us through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. Uh, The focus and fulfillment of all God's promises are found in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Uh, God calls us to look to Christ in faith in order to be justified before him. Look at verse 25. He, speaking of Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So you see, the Christian life is continuing thereafter every day to trust in the promises of God. So how does our faith grow? Uh, It's helpful to think of faith like a muscle. Uh, It grows through being stretched Uh, Faith is made stronger through hard times and daunting circumstances. Uh, Many of us here can testify that it is through the difficult times that we have had as Christians when we've really grown as Christians. Uh, Abraham had a great faith, uh, but it's not to say that he never had any doubts. It actually took, when we read the Genesis account, it took 25 years for God to deliver on his promise to Abraham. Abraham was 100, nearly 100, when God finally gave them the kid, and Sarah by that point was 90. And yet he still delivered on his promise. God gave them Isaac. And during those years of waiting, uh, the Genesis account reveals that there were times when Abraham did wobble a bit. But the bottom line was that he didn't respond with unbelief and rejection, but he continued to hold on through faith. Sometimes it may feel like we are going backwards in our faith if we're trusting in Jesus. Uh, We may struggle with doubts, but that is all part of the faith journey. Uh, Christian faith isn't a leap in the dark. It's not trying to believe something that we know ain't true. Quite the opposite. Faith is reason trust. It involves us using our minds. 
we reflect both on the promises of God and the character of the God who made them. And how do we learn about what God has promised? Of course, through the reading of His Word, the Bible. We need to know what God has promised, and we also need to know what He has not promised. Uh, Some Christians believe that if they have faith, God will give them an easy life, that they will enjoy health and wealth and prosperity now. But is that what God's Word says? Actually, it says quite the opposite. If you're with us next week, when we look at Romans chapter 5 together, we see there that Christians can expect suffering in this life, and yet God uses our suffering to grow our faith. Uh, Shortly after my father died, uh, some well-meaning but ill-informed person came to our house and suggested to my mum that my father died because he had, in some way, a deficient faith. Uh, I don't think they'd been on the Helping People with Grief counselling course. Uh, Sadly, I think that person's faith was found wanting. It was an immature and ill-informed position. The Bible does not say that. God has made wonderful promises to us of far greater weight and consequence than merely having an easy life. The good news of Jesus, the gospel as Paul refers to it, it's God's promise of blessing rather than curse. It's the promise of life, eternal life, rather than eternal death. It's the promise of rescue rather than ruin. It's the promise of forgiveness and friendship with God. It's the promise of an immortal resurrection body when Jesus returns. It's a promise ultimately of a return to paradise in the new creation when Jesus returns. And all these blessings come to us through faith in God's promise, not performance of God's law. And so as we continue on the journey of faith through this life to the new creation in the next, God has promised all those who put their trust in Christ in Hebrews 13 verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful and great promises. Uh, You have been so kind and generous to us in giving us this gift, this undeserved gift of righteousness through faith in Christ, your Son. Thank you that you haven't changed over the centuries. This has always been the way, and therefore we can have an assurance of being forgiven and reconciled to you through simply accepting your gift. May this wonderful truth burn brighter in all our hearts, and may we indeed well up with hearts of thankfulness and a desire, therefore, to live increasingly to your glory as we continue on our life journey of faith. Amen.